Well, we last week we're looking at there's another way to pray. And we're going to have some very similar topics and themes coming into the midst of this story today uh, on Palm Sunday. And we're looking at Jesus and the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus clearing the temple. And it's both kind of about prayer, but it's also about how we as a community come together in prayer. And how do we allow and enable worship of all people and not just ourselves? And, and how does God find our, our faith, our spirituality, our prayer life uh, when God examines us? And so I, I wanted to start us off with a few kind of fast facts out front um, about this passage, because it's a little bit of a peculiar passage. It has some unique things to it uh, that gets a lot of commentary, conversation, and some of those things you might not even notice. So, for example, we read in our passage through verse 25, and if you have your Bible out, you might notice there's no verse 26 probably in your Bible translation, because verse 26 uh, doesn't appear in most of the earliest Transla translations and manuscripts. And so at some point in the 1500s when they started adding verses and chapters to the Bible, uh, that verse existed in their manuscripts. And then we started looking back at earlier texts and realized that it's not quite original probably, and so that verse number just disappears. And most of the time there's a footnote that says uh, some manuscripts add in verse 26. Uh, and so that might be a little bit of a strange, little unique thing of this passage, and that happens every so often, but this is one of those times. There's another kind of interesting, strange thing about this text, and that's the way it presents Jesus. Uh, first, he's hungry, and we're kind of used to maybe that kind of mentality of Jesus got tired or Jesus, you know, here is hungry. But there's another aspect to this that makes some people feel more or less comfortable with it. Uh, one commentator called it Jesus looking less than omniscient, uh, because Jesus is going to look for food, and he's going to check something out and then realize there's no food there. And so it kind of leads to a, a mindset or a mentality that, that Jesus is learning and exploring something, uh, which sometimes in the gospel seems very at home. Um, sometimes in our theologies might not. And so that's an interesting part of this text. This is also an interesting text because this is the only destructive miracle that we have of Jesus in the Gospels. It's a story of Jesus cursing a fig tree and it withering up to its roots. Usually Jesus is bringing life. You know, why doesn't he turn the, the tree into bread or something if he's hungry? Uh, and so that's a little bit of a unique part of this text. And I want to give you one historical uh, note that will be important for us along the way. This, this gospel, most scholars think, was written around the time that the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. So there was a Jewish revolt around 66 through 70 AD, and the Jerusalem temple fell at the hands of the Romans. And that was a huge, important uh, moment. If you can think about how, how crazy it feels in our own historical moment today of things being shut down and what's going on, well, the temple structure was the center of their faith uh, for uh, the Jewish faith and for the Christians who are emerging in the midst of that. And even in Acts, we see the disciples still hanging around the temple structure. And to lose that temple would have been devastating, would have changed uh, people's ways of thinking about their faith. And so a lot of the story might be understood in the lens of how does this story 
speak to people who just experienced a devastating, uh, tragic event. And so that's going on in the text. And then I want to make note of one more thing, which is going to be really important for us. Sometimes there's technical phrases for this, uh, but Mark uses a lot of what's called sandwiches or intercalations. Uh, It's a literary technique of having a story that starts and ends and inserting another story in the middle of it. So you've got a sandwich and you've got, let's say, the meat of the story. And I'll take another example from the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus is having his trial. So the, the story is bracketed where people are interrogating Jesus. They're making accusations against Jesus. And, and they ask, you know, well, what do you say for yourself? And he says, go ask anybody. I've been freely teaching all this stuff. Go ask them what I say about myself. And Mark pulls out, and he gives us the meat of the story in which Peter denies Jesus three times. And then the story goes back to the courtroom case in which they find him uh, guilty, and they they go on um, with the rest of the story. And so there's this technique of sandwiching a story within a story, and it makes commentary on both ends of those stories. And so our text today has a sandwich. It's got a fig tree story bread, and a meat of the temple cleansing story. And so we're going to start in that middle part where the temple is cleansed. Uh, That's kind of traditional language for the story, but where Jesus clears out the temple. And so Jesus clears the temple, both those who were buying things and selling things. And it's important to note why they're buying and selling things and what's happening in this scene. The temple structure was very, very large, and it started in the innermost part where only the priests could go on certain occasions, and then it gets kind of further out from that concentric circle-wise. There ends up being a place that men can go and then a place that women can go, and you get to the spot where the nations, all Gentiles, can gather around God's temple. And it's in the midst of that where the nations are supposed to gather to worship that they are doing a lot of transactions, a lot of trading. You've got um, some rules that you shouldn't use coins that have faces on them, and so we don't want to use Roman coins to make our good spiritual sacrifices. So you've got to exchange that Roman money for uh, some other kind of money. And once you have your money, well, maybe you're paying your temple tax, or maybe you're going and buying some grain or an animal to sacrifice at the altar. And so they're there's all these animals and all of these kind of transactions going on. And it doesn't say in this text that Jesus only drives out those selling things. He also drives out the people who are buying things. He drives everybody out, which would have caused quite a commotion. And it's hard to understand historically how exactly this scene would have unfolded because the Roman soldiers are kind of keeping watch. And if you were causing a scene, they would have quickly stooped in and, and swooped in and, and, and taken you and and figured out what to do with the commotion going on. But I don't know that this story is as much about necessarily all of what historically is happening while Jesus is there as much as Mark is trying to understand how on earth did we end up in a situation where the temple was destroyed? That's just a matter of fact. The temple's gone. Why? It is not that Jesus dislikes the temple. You could turn this story in a lot of ugly directions. Um, People have used these kinds of texts for anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, Jesus is not anti the temple. He is anti what that temple has become. 
like the way that people are operating, the way that people's faith are being lived out in that temple, not the way of the temple altogether. And so we are all tempted into this, this dilemma, this tension, this challenge of transactional types of thinking or experiential types of thinking. You know, is, it about, is our faith about transactions or experiences? You know, it's easy to see in a temple setting how there's transactions at work, but also in our own church contexts of, well, you know, if I show up at church a certain number of weeks of the year, shouldn't I be safe? Shouldn't I be protected? Like, shouldn't I not get sick? Shouldn't I get that raise I want? Whatever it is that you're hoping for in life, did you do a number of things to deserve it, to receive that transaction? Or is showing up into the life of the faith community about having an experience of God, being able to come into a conversation uh, of faith with your brothers and sisters, but also your Lord. And so we're all tempted into this challenging situation where our faith just ends up becoming a transaction, just becoming a religious set of, of what I need to do instead of why we do it. And so Jesus really hits at the heart of this by talking about prayer. He asks a central question in the middle of the scene. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now he quotes two uh, Old Testament texts in this passage in that quote. He quotes from Isaiah 56 in Jeremiah 7. Now, Isaiah 56 is this, this uh, dream and this vision that Israel, that God's mountain, that God's temple will be a temple that brings all of the nations of the world closer to God, and that all people might become elevated as they get closer to God's mountain and start praying and start worshiping the one God. And so, Jesus is upset in the story because he's saying, how are all of the nations of the world supposed to come and get closer to God if you've made it a marketplace? How are you supposed to have prayer time when, when it's loud and filled with all of this commotion? And sometimes we don't think about how we invite the world into our own context of so many, so many ways of, well, you know, this is how I've always done this. This is the way our community is used to this without any attention or thought to well, what's that outsider who comes into the space that God wants to, to connect us to? How are they going to be invited into prayer and into worship and into the life of God's community? And so Jesus uh, is calling that out. And he also mentions that quote from Jeremiah 7, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the context of this is uh, there used to be these sanctuary cities that if you committed a crime, you could always flee and go and stay in that spot and be safe. And that mentality got wrapped into, surely the Babylonians, our enemies at war, won't be able to defeat us if we withdraw back to God's mountain, onto God's city and God's temple. And it will always stand, of course. But it doesn't. Uh, and I love that Jesus is also calling into account that we have, have, we have not lived up to our responsibility by calling us robbers. You know, we, we've failed in some capacity. And so we shouldn't think that we are, you know, omitted from having potential danger or challenges or conflicts. Um, and so he's calling into account that 
this temple structure that this, this community can experience pain and, and, and difficult times, and they can't just rely on feeling like, of course, we're going to be safe, just this temple structure. And we know from Mark's time that they're already dealing with that reality. And so there are a lot of churches that, I say a lot, but it's probably, it's magnified by our way of hearing about them, but there's still churches in our country right now who are still gathering against the recommendations of the state, and states are having to decide, you know, do we send police? Do we, like, how do we exactly say stop gathering when it's unsafe to gather? And sometimes that is happening right now because we feel like we are living out God's calling. As long as we come into God's place and God's walls, God will use this and we will all be safe and fine. Devastation will never come our way. And so we are tempted into that same complacency, that same temptation of, of, uh, unnes- of, of safety that, that is not always going to be the case. And so Jesus, in the midst of calling that out inside the temple... And so he clears the temple out, and the, the, of course the religious authorities are not happy about any of that, and so it says that they're going to look for a way to get rid of Jesus. They don't know how to because the crowds all are captivated by him, and he poses a danger or a threat to them because their established ways of doing things are under attack. So that's the sandwich meat of the story, that temple story, and the bread surrounding it is symbolic commentary on what's happening in that temple scene. And so, at the beginning of our story, Jesus is on his way from Bethany into Jerusalem, and he looks out at the distance and he sees a tree, and it's a fruit-bearing tree, and it's this fig tree, and he's like, oh, I wonder if there's some food. And maybe you've had this notion where you've had a hunger for something, and you've opened your cabinet doors, and you saw the box of this treat you were longing for, and you picked it up, and it went way too easily off the shelf. <sighs> Empty. Who put it back in the cabinet? And so Jesus comes up to this tree, and he sees the leaves are, are, are full, but there's no fruit. And he's hungry, and so he says... Uh, a kind of curse on it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, there's this little note in Mark that says that it wasn't even the season to bear fruit. And so fig season in that region is usually late May, and Passover is usually late March or early April. And so sometimes we might be like, why on earth is Jesus so harsh on this tree that of course is not blooming? And again, if you think symbolically about what's happening... We are tempted just as anybody else in all time to want to say, you know, there's going to be a season, there'll be a a time at some point in which I am going to uh, commit to God, in which I'm going to uh, increase my prayer life, in which I'm going to read Scripture even more, uh, I'm going to serve God more, I'm going to go volunteer at that thing. And not right now, but but at some point, there'll be a season for that. And Jesus is coming and looking, and it doesn't matter what season it is, and God is wondering what the fruit of your faith is. And it doesn't matter when 
But God is coming to examine at all times. And so it's not enough to just say, well, at some point it'll be the right season and we'll bear fruit. Um, But where are you right now in your faith? And so how are we cultivating our faith right now in the midst of being separated? Uh, We don't need to wait to having our doors reopened to start increasing our faith and our, our closeness with God. We are invited to that right now. And so Jesus curses that fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so the next day, they walk by and the tree has withered to the root. And symbolically, it's saying the same thing of the temple structure, that by the time of Mark's community, they know that temple is gone. It has been destroyed. And you can look with eyes and see it. Now, as often as the case in the Gospels, Peter invites us into a wonderful conversation because he loves to be outspoken. And so he's pretty stoked that he finds out that he sees that tree. He's like, hey, I remember that tree. You know, you cursed that yesterday. Look at it. It's withered. And Jesus is like, well, of course, you know. Uh, He's like, hey, have faith. What did you think when I said it yesterday? Have faith. Whatever you ask for in prayer will be yours. Now, he's going to say something in a second about prayer and about how you can do anything kind of in prayer in this kind of mentality. But I think we need to be careful about how people use this verse because it very much is embedded into the context of this story. Uh, They are standing, looking out across the way to the mountain of the Lord. They're looking at God's temple structure. You can see it on the mountain. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you will say, it will come to pass and it will be done for you. And so, in the context of Mark, we're talking about how did this temple structure, how did it fall? And Jesus is like, you were marveling at the fact that this fig tree withered. I just rebuked the temple. You're going to see it withered. It's going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. Even the strong temple that has the mighty leaves, that, that you're like, wow, that, look at those great leaves. But there's no fruit there. And so if you, if you think it's marvelous that, I, that this tree has miraculously changed, just wait. And so Jesus talks that there's a responsibility about prayer. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And I love that in this story, Jesus is telling you about how to pray. One that you can do more than you think you can, but that you have a responsibility with your prayer life. And that communally we have a responsibility with our prayer life and our way of worshiping together. Because just like Jesus goes and and sends people out of the temple, God can do that in our own lives. He might rebuke and might say, hey, what's going on? Where's the fruit? And now we know that God does that in a loving way. It can be painful in the moment. But we have a responsibility when we stand praying, don't just pray, 
hey, like, I can throw a mountain off? Okay, well, what kinds of crazy, marvelous things do I want to do today? But when you're praying, forgive other people. If you have anything against anyone, you know, like, pray for other people. Don't make it about yourself. And that's a part of the problem that Jesus is calling out with the temple is, hey, make this a place for everyone. And so a part of our worshiping community is looking around for the people on the outside that God is inviting in and wanting to make our community a place of prayer in which we pray for forgiveness for each other, where we pray for the benefit and the, and the blessing uh, and, and the good towards all those in our lives, not just selfishly for ourselves. And so there's no season to wait to make that change in your life. You know, if you feel like you've been distant from God, not that God has been distant from you, but if you feel like you've been distant from God, there is no better time than right now to return to God in prayer, to return to God and ask for God to cultivate fruit in the midst of your life, that God might change not just your inner being, but the way that you live out into the world as well. And so today I want to ask us to choose to worship, to live our lives with a spirit of prayer, to be a community that does that together and enables people into that way of life. And so I hope that we realize the importance of that call to a life of prayer and to a life that brings God's blessing and God's experience to all people. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we, we come before you asking that you might cultivate within our lives, within what might be our anxieties, our stresses, our, our, our fears, whatever's in the midst of us right now, that our roots might go down into your spirit and that you might bring out love and joy and patience and all of the, the beautiful fruit of the spirit, that they might not just be internal into us but might be lived out into the world. Lord, help us to have an imagination for how to be a community that prays for those around us who looks to uplift and to support one another instead of looking inward. Lord, we ask that you would just um, help us to see truly and gently all those places in which we are not yet living into your image. Lord, help us to see how you might transform us in this very moment, not just down the road. Lord, let this time be a time for your transformation in our lives. It's in your most precious name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.